Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're a show that tackles some difficult topics sometimes. And um, I think although this topic isn't particularly painful, I guess it kind of could be. Um, I'm waffling here because we're going to be talking with an expert, Sherry Hamby. She's a PhD and she's director of Life Paths Research Center and the founder of Resilience Con. And uh, she's also a research professor at, uh, of psychology at the University of the South. And so she's a licensed clinical psychologist, she's a researcher, and she's worked for more than 20 years on the problem of violence, including frontline crisis intervention and treatment, involvement in grassroots organizations, and research leading to the publication of more than 200 articles and books. Thank you very much for joining us, Sherry. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, quite a background you have, and uh, you've done so many things, and then I hope we get a chance to uh, talk about all of them. But right now, the, I'm going to go back to saying that could this be a difficult topic or could it not? Certainly not as difficult as, or as painful as some of the topics we've covered, but we're going to talk about blaming the victim. And Sherry, I'm going to tell you about something that happened over the weekend to me that wasn't about necessarily domestic violence, but it was definitely, I saw it as blaming the victim. I was at a retreat, and the woman who uh, was giving the keynote address was talking about filling your well and keeping yourself, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I mean, we've all heard those talks, right? And then she yeah. kind of started getting a little woo-woo for me. And she ended up saying that if you don't keep your well full, if your well uh, is is uh, empty, that's when you get cancer. That's when you get MS. That And I went, what? <laughs> I saw that as the ultimate blame the victim. See, you have this disease. It's because you didn't do the work to keep your well filled. Am I overly sensitive? Yeah, that is. Or is <laughs> no, that's a, that's a horrifying story. That is absolutely blaming the victim, and it's really a, a classic example of the of the worst of that, and a and a good illustration of how even professionals in in many of these fields can get caught up in this force that is such a. There's so many powerful reasons to be attracted to this idea of of blaming the victim, but of course it's not people's fault when they get cancer and. Uh, you know, even the extent to which some of that might be due to diet and exercise, I think we tend to overly focus on that little piece of the pie and ignore all of the things that are out of our control because that that makes us so uncomfortable. And so it's it's really a wish fulfillment. It's a, it's a fantasy to think that, oh, if we all live completely virtuous lives and then we can guarantee we're never going to get cancer. I mean, wouldn't that be so fantastically yeah. awesome if that were true? That would be well, exactly. And well, one of the things that um, I notice is that people seem to have an expectation that if they do, have, if they eat enough kale and they exercise enough, and then they're never going to die. But you know what? The last I checked, we're all going to die. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> last I checked, I yeah, think mortality is 100%. Um, and, and, uh, again, a, a brief story before I let you go off on your, your expert stuff, but I had a friend who was a nurse who worked at hospice for a couple of years, and then she told me that she was going to quit. And I said, yeah, I bet that you burn out a lot. I said, I bet that's a difficult job with working with those patients. And she said, oh, it's not the, she said, it's not the, the fact that they're dying that's difficult. She said, it's the fact that they blame themselves for dying. Hmm. And I went, wow, wow. Um, so anyway, I have real strong feelings about this whole, you know, eat right, exercise right. And I think it makes us feel very virtuous. See, we this bad thing hasn't happened to us, and that's because we're virtuous. We're doing what we're supposed to do. We haven't gotten the cancer. We don't live with domestic violence. Clearly, we're doing something right. I see blaming the victim as kind of, Try and convince yourself that you're safe from whatever it is that you're blaming them for. Yes, exactly. Well, that's the the wish fulfillment element of it is just to, to you know, and and also I think what you're saying there is also just a terrific example of this kind of extreme extent to which we take these ideas of meritocracy and and American and other 
Western cultures where we just think that we can, you know, through virtue, that we can just avoid all of the bad things in life. And it causes so many harms in so many ways. I mean, your friend who left the field because she just couldn't handle all the self-blame that was going on around her is a, a good example of good people not even staying in this work because of the the forces of victim blaming, I, I do think they cause a lot more harm than people often realize. Yeah. Um, how did you get into this field? What is it that spurred you to, to do so? And I know you research other areas as well, um, but the particular this particular area, what is it about it that attracted you and you wanted to do more research on it? Well, I think I just you see this is such a, a huge problem, and I have worked with victims for many years, and especially victims of domestic violence, and even professionals in the field, as you as your story illustrates, can be so punitive and blaming of people. And, you know, I think that one of the problems in the field is that we all have these professional personas and that we all sort of pretend that you know, that we've got our lives perfectly together and that we're one of those really virtuous people who's never even going to get cancer. We're so incredibly virtuous and, uh, you know, and that we don't really, you know, and, and that we create this real sort of us them dichotomy between us as professionals and the people that we're trying to help. But, but one of the things that I've learned in my work, and I think with the onset of ideas from fields like adverse childhood experiences and lots of other people are working on this concept too. It's just the idea that, that adversity and trauma and even victimization are, are far, far more common than what we think. There have been any number of really large scale studies, you know, some of my own and some of, of many other people's in many countries inside the U S and outside the U S uh, and they all show that by adulthood, you can expect, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight out of 10 people to have been exposed to victimization. And if you count other types of adversity, like the cancer you were talking about, serious illness or bereavement or things like that, well, then you really get quite quickly up to 98 or 99% of the population. And so as you as you mentioned, I mean, I think that's the most important thing to hang on to is this, this idea that none of us get out of this alive and that we're all going to have to deal with these adversities or watch our loved ones go through these adversities. And and so I just became frustrated with the, the really condescending and damaging way that people, even professionals in my field, often respond to victims like they like they don't realize that they're one day they're going to be on the other side of that desk. And I I think maybe because I didn't come up from a professional family, I, my um, parents and grandparents and extended family are much more from working class backgrounds that I just kind of realized early, you know, early in my career that a lot of this was not really being fair to the people that we were trying to help. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You talk about the difference in a blue collar background. There's um, um, a Facebook site, a group um, called Blue Collar Scholars. And having come from a long line of eighth grade dropouts and now at this point in my life working on my Ph.D., you, it, 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 it gives you a different perspective. You don't tend to look at things exactly the same way as these people who have always come from you know, professional or academic backgrounds. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, do you think there's a difference in how between those, I don't know, what are we going to call that difference, a cultural difference and, a, you know, an educational difference, whatever you want to call it, the difference between the professional backgrounds and the people like you and I who don't, didn't come from that. Do you think that we view victims differently? Do you think there's anything about that that shapes our, our attitudes about victims? I I do, and I I think that this all boils down to one really important concept for understanding victim blaming and how privilege intersects with that concept. So there's this concept that's been in psychology for a long time called the just world concept, and it's this idea that all of us want to believe in this just world. I mean, it goes back to that again. I mean, it was such a cogent example of the people, if you eat enough kale, you're not going to get cancer and that, because that would be just, right? That would be a moral universe of where the people who treat their bodies well are are not going to be punished with illness. But 
of course, we don't live in that universe, and even tiny infants who are completely blameless can have the most serious illnesses. And uh, but people do really hang on to that, and that while and that is what drives a great deal of victim blaming, and it is pretty well established that 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 is part of being able to hang on to that as forcefully as you're describing in your example is an element of privilege. So if you live in Syria or if you live in a, you know, I'm based in rural Appalachia and my work, and if you live in those communities, then I think that there's just no way that you are not going to see lots and lots of injustice and lots and lots of people getting hurt and having bad experiences who certainly didn't do anything to bring that on themselves. And so I think that people who come from those backgrounds tend to have more empathy and be a little bit less quick to blame victims. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Based on my limited experience, I've certainly never studied it as you have, but, you know, uh, anecdotally, I, I think I agree with you. So where does that come from? You know, where, why do we, and, and I shouldn't hold myself to some lofty standard here because I know I've done it myself. I mean, I've talked with domestic violence victims and I'm, I'm really tuned into domestic violence victims, but every now and then I've talked with one and a little piece of me thinks, well, what did you expect? You know, um, on yeah. occasion. And when those thoughts creep in, I go, ah, you know. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's it's kind of human nature to a certain extent, I guess. Why? Why do we do it? Yeah, I don't know if it's human nature, but I think it's certainly the water that we're swimming in, and that there is just a, a lot of pressure. I mean, a lot of this is just really drawn out to a, a strong extent in facets of American culture. So we really place a high premium on risk reduction. And so, for example, I mean, to take a different example, now kids are doing all of these lockdown drills for shooters in schools. And sometimes we just take these really extreme steps to minimize risk when they probably, I mean, it's not evidence-based, it's not proven, it's not been shown at all that, that kids are better off in any kind of way for this, but we've just, it's, I saw something the other day that I think they said 95% of kids in public schools are now doing these lockdown drills and it's just all being driven by, by fear. So, and we're traumatizing all of these kids. We're scaring the stuffing out of them without any evidence whatsoever that it's making people safer, but we just are, are driven to pursue these, these fantasies of risk reduction. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate. It's one of the main things that keeps, people from getting the help that they need well and then i think they think if they do the risk prevention then they're home free they're not going to have to worry about a thing um and you and i both know that that's silly i mean you, you know these uh, the, one of my things i was reading a study recently where uh, what are they calling it? i guess they finally at least pew research finally decided that they're going to call them the gen z generation z the ones that were born in 2000 and their biggest fear is school shootings. And I'm going, are you kidding me? You should be, if you're looking at statistics, you should be more afraid of getting in your car and driving because you're much more likely <laughs> to, to right. have something adverse happen in your car, uh, much more likely to, than that to ever, you know, to see a school shooting. And yet we emphasize, we focus so much on the school shooting things and, and we kind of ignore, you know, uh, all this other stuff. So it's, to me, right. it's like, okay, well, we all like driving and we all want to drive. So, okay, we'll just kind of pretend that there's no risk involved with that. Um, but then we focus on these egregious cases, which, I mean, I'm not saying we should ignore them. I mean, certainly, but to just make it such a pivotal focus uh, and ignore the other things seems incongruous to me. It really does. Yeah, we definitely are not acting rationally, and I think that that is one of the hard things to push against. And again, you know, it's I think a lot of times people ignore things like the risk of driving because they feel like they're in charge and in control of that situation, which is also not really true. I mean, you're 
uh, it, you know, people who are very good drivers get in very serious car accidents all the time for the same reason that we can't control things as much as we like to think that we can. And so sometimes things, the more, the more it seems like stranger danger, the more it seems like something that is completely independent of their own actions, I think the more they tend to invest in prevention. But you're right, school shootings are horrible, and there's this terrible epidemic of that. Um, the way that we're approaching that is similar to the way that we approach domestic violence and sexual assault, is that all the efforts that we're pouring into it are on victim behavior. That's another thing that helps feed into this victim blaming dynamic. So we don't do anything to try to reduce perpetrators. We won't take any steps about gun control. Uh, you know, we, uh, we don't even in focus on other areas that rationally should be of much greater concern, like suicide prevention. Suicide rates are going up among that same demographic of young people, and we don't make anywhere near the investment, or we haven't transform schools anywhere near to the extent to try to work on suicide prevention. And uh, as you said, when we like what goes along with that risk, I just saw a, a really telling article that just came out recently showing that, um, that when uh, 13 Reasons Why, that Netflix show with a uh, with who the lead character is, somebody who committed suicide, came out that that month that there was the a huge spike in suicides among adolescents, and it was the biggest uh, one-month spike in the 19 years that they've been collecting data on that. And so what we really should be doing if we worry about kids and school safety is that we should be making Netflix take that kind of suicide porn off the air and not give young people, you know, minors access to that kind of content. But instead, we're just doing all these lockdown drills and there's increasing evidence that that's creating, uh, you know, PTSD. The drills themselves are creating trauma for these kids. I read some article the other day with these heartbreaking stories about where the kids are coming home and asking their parents, like, well, how are we supposed to decide, like, who goes into the closets because there's not room for everybody? And, uh, oh, you know, geez. Oh. I know. Isn't that just heartbreaking? <laughs> I, I mean, that just hurts me <laughs> to think of a child having to think of those things. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting. This thought occurs to me as you're speaking. Do we blame the victim in suicide? That kind of gets a pass with our blaming the victim, doesn't it? Oh, I think we blame the victim in suicide. I, You know, I mean, who – yeah, I, I don't think that there's – really any kind of bad outcome from, you know, all the ones we've been talking about, cancer to domestic violence to, you know, not dodging bullets well enough in a school shooting. I mean, I just think that there's there's no real limit to what we'll blame victims for. Okay. All right. Well, I, I had, uh, my father committed suicide, and I don't recall, but maybe I just didn't hear it, I you know, what people were saying. So oh, I don't very know. Sorry to hear that. Oh, well, it was many mm. years ago, but um, yeah, it, it uh, yeah. So, but you do see it with suicides that it's blaming the victim. Well, you know, I mean, I think that I yeah, I see it in terms of. I think it's certainly at the very least uh, framed as a as a poor choice and a mistake and. And there are some segments to push back against that, just as there are with domestic violence or some of these other issues. And, uh, you know, like the assisted suicide movement is uh, basically a movement to say that it can be a, a rational decision or that it should be a choice that is respected in at least some circumstances. But but for the most part, I, I think that, uh, you know, that, no, that, that the choices are, are seen as uh, – you know, problematic at least, and that they have somehow made some error in judgment at, mm-hmm. at the very least. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Um, maybe we should back up a little bit, and sometimes this stuff is very subtle. What is, can you define blaming the victim? How would you, uh, you know, uh, because just as you and I were kind of going, hmm, oh, okay, so that's blaming the victim, da da can you clarify for us? I mean, what exactly is blaming the victim and how do we do it? Right. Well, that starts to get into some uh, 
thorny philosophical issue that we could probably talk about for the rest of the day. <laughs> but 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 it is a good <laughs> yeah right. But it is a good question because uh, you know I think sometimes that uh, the the idea of of blame is is a little bit tricky to understand, and so and and if you unpack that, I think you can see right away like why victim blaming doesn't really make any sense because in uh, you know the sort of psychological and philosophical literature on this issue to to be blameworthy for something means that you have to be the person who is responsible for it and also that you intended to do it so for example i mean sometimes it might be more helpful to put it in contrast to things where we we don't uh label blame. So for example, an accident would be a classic um, example of that. Uh, You know, if somebody trips and then they fall into you and knock you over and you hurt yourself, um, you know, probably you're not going to blame any of the people involved in that. You're not going to think of the person who tripped as a perpetrator. And, um, you know, and if you, you might recognize the person who got crashed into as the victim, but you're probably not going to be, you know, say something like, well, what were you doing standing there or, or something like that. And so we, in philosophy, you have to have both of those elements that they were clearly the actor who initiated and was responsible for the action and that they were intending for that to happen. And so you can easily see that with perpetrators and, and then that's how sometimes perpetrators can, get out of trouble for something too. So for example, if uh, somebody was forced to kidnap someone, if you want to take like a cliche plot line of a TV show because they were, had a gun held to their head or because the person had kidnapped their kid and was threatening to kill their kid, if they didn't go kidnap the president or whatever it is, um, you know, then you don't blame that person, even though they are the ones who committed that act of, of kidnapping because they you know were forced into it and it wasn't something they sort of freely chose and entered into uh, so that's how we think about assigning blame in the criminal justice system for perpetrators and so that really should be applying to victims too and of course as soon as you think of it that way you can see how it doesn't really make any sense to blame the victim at all because victims aren't trying to get cancer and they're not trying to get beaten up and or shot or whatever and it's not their intention for it to come out that way and most of the time they're just going about their business in ways that are completely standard for their culture and their social position and so uh, you know they shouldn't really be blamed at all but it's when we act as if somehow the victim was intentionally bringing it on or you'll often see people talk about that the victim provoked it in some way and that's a classic victim blaming word and so somehow that the that's the classic rape thing you know what were you wearing why were you there yeah right well and of course a lot of this is you know when, when you get into things like sexual assault or domestic violence you start to get into issues of sexism and uh, prejudice against women and making them be the ones. I mean, why should women be responsible for men's behavior? I mean, we don't say that about robbery victims, for example. I mean, even the the wealthiest people, you're like, well, what were you thinking when you were wearing that Rolex watch? Or why were you driving that, you know, fancy Mercedes or whatever? And we don't blame them for owning nice things and uh, but we do blame women for being physically attractive. Well, you know, as long as we're doing that, I'm going to diverge because there's something that confuses me. Um, as a woman who raised a daughter, um, I don't, I mean, I, I had a son. I mean, I always told my son, I don't care if some woman is totally drunk, walking down the street naked, that doesn't give you a right to do anything to her. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. I would tell my daughter, you need to always be in control of yourself because when you're not in control of yourself, that's when bad things happen. So if you decide to go out partying with the fraternity and something bad happens, not that you're to blame for that or that it excuses that. It's just that, you know, you're kind of 
positioning yourself to be exposed to more risk. And I said that to one of my friends, and she said, so that's victim blaming. And I went, ah, is it? I don't know. To me, it was just practical. I mean, you wouldn't take your Mercedes down to, you know, uh, some alley in downtown and leave it running with the keys in it, and then you come out and the car is stolen. Well, were they were they in the right to steal it? Of course not. But hello, you know, I'm I. So am I hopelessly outdated and and narrow-minded on this? Uh, no, I I don't think so. But you probably have zoomed in on one of the the trickiest balancing acts uh you know and i also have a a son and a daughter who are both teenagers now and so i can very much relate to what you're talking about with sexual assault prevention and i have really wrestled with i mean i you know have wrestled with it professionally for many years and of course it definitely changes your views on it in some sense when it's your own children that you're thinking about um I mean, I do think that, I mean, let's go back to the robbery example, because sometimes it's easier to start with um, an example where there's, it's less emotionally laden and there's not as much cultural baggage to think about it. So, yeah, I mean, if your car gets stolen and you leave it running, uh, you know, that is probably, I mean, it's just people are probably more likely to, raise their eyebrows at that. I mean, they still, the police will still take that report. I mean, they won't define it as not a crime and they, they might say, well, you shouldn't leave your, you know, shouldn't leave your car running, sir. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, and they'll still, I mean, if they catch that person, they will still charge them and they will still treat them in pretty much the same way as whether or not they um, broke in and hotwired it or whether or not they just opened the door and, and found it running with the keys in it. And so there's, there's not the extreme swinging about it, even in cases where perhaps people's judgment, uh, you know, for the dangerous world that we can live in, you know, wasn't sufficiently uh, taken into consideration. And then of course, you know, it depends on the circumstance. There was a story in the news just a couple of days ago um, that, fortunately had a happy ending but uh, a woman pulled up and can't remember who their relative was but she had her, her adult son or daughter or something like that in the car with her she pulled up to the emergency room um, jumped out of the car to take uh, her adult child into the emergency room and then their her grandchildren her two grandchildren were in the back seat and they weren't that small I mean the oldest one was eight but as soon as she jumped out of the car, somebody jumped in and tried to uh, drive off with the car and the kids. And the, the little eight-year-old boy, he got he and his uh, sister out of the car, and they jumped out of it while it was moving, and he was moving away. And then eventually they, they caught the guy who stole the car, too. So it had a relatively happy ending in that he wasn't successful in kidnapping the children, and maybe he wasn't even trying to. I'm not sure. But uh but, you know, under a circumstance like that, when, you know, there's a life-threatening medical emergency, and so the reason that she opened the door and stepped away from it with the car running was because she was trying to save her child's life, and you might see that differently, too. So I think that we have to have the details of that, that context in mind. Uh, but what I, I tell my own kids regarding sexual assault is I, I pretty much do exactly what you did. I mean, with both of them, I teach them the need to to have consent and to show respect, uh, you know, and I want them to make sure that they're educated about date rape drugs and that they have to take protective measures against that. I actually think it's important to do that for both your male and your female children because, uh, you know, men can be victims of sexual assault too, and women can also be perpetrators, even though it's much rarer, it's, it does happen. And so they should, you know, be all, everybody should have that basic information. But I do also tell them that it is a, a dangerous world and that there are uh, predators out there and that they, uh, in the criminology world, they call this hardening the target. And, uh, you know, I think that you do have to take steps to protect yourself and recognize that it that it is a dangerous world. And so I, I don't think that it's wrong to teach kids that, but I think that it is 
wrong uh, when something bad happens to focus on the behavior of the, the victims instead of on the behaviors of the perpetrator. And sexual assault is easily the place where we are the worst about this. And, you know, very, we even now, so much of our sexual assault prevention is focused on young women and what they can do to protect themselves instead of you know, sitting young men down and explaining to them that, you know, we understand that you might be under pressure among your friends to be sexually experienced and that you might be curious about sexuality and you know it's normal to be curious about sexuality uh, but you know but that's none of those things excuse that behavior or or just uh you know in this recent was it um Swarthmore where they uh, just closed down that frat because they of the somebody got access to like their internal communications and they were pressuring each other in the fraternity to commit sexual assault and they were calling their attic of their uh, frat house the rape attic and they were coaching oh each God. other about buying date rape drugs and you know and so we're we keep focusing on on women and what women can do to prevent sexual assault but we, what we need to do is is focus on perpetrators and focus on men and we're not really going to reduce the incidence of sexual assault i mean at best if you're i mean i'm still coaching my kids to be safe as <laughs> they can and so you know i understand that as a parent that you know all of us would you know want to coach our kids to protect ourselves uh, but you know but if we leave the perpetrators out there and we're not doing anything to try to keep them from becoming or, or continuing to perpetrate then all we're really doing is shifting that victimization from one person to the next and you know, the other person at the party who doesn't have the same parent who sat them down and educated them about date rape drugs and uh, you know doesn't know to you know not let other people makes her drink for her or whatever it is and um you know obviously I, my kids are both underage and i don't want them drinking or things like that but i also realize that you know my oldest started college this year and you know that she's going to get exposed to people drinking and that it's uh you know that they need to know how to handle those kinds of situations yeah i think you're right i mean you know you don't you don't have to be you don't have to be placing blame on the victim to teach them to be as safe as possible you know um it seems to me but i've been criticized for for saying something like that um so i just wanted your take on it well i mean it so, depends it depends too, well i guess can i just follow up on that cuz i think it depends too hmm. on like what you're trying to do to to um get them to be safe so uh you know like the Elizabeth Smart case probably is a good example. I mean, she grew up in this extremely conservative Mormon family where they just are wearing extremely modest dress and, and they taught her not to speak to strangers. That is another thing that we often say about our kids that I just think is the worst advice ever. So, you know, you can't, so it depends whether or not you're, so I tell my kids like, you know, be aware that, people might use date rape drugs if, if you go to a big party and, you know, keep an eye on your drink and don't let somebody that you don't know, like mix, you know, or that, you know, that you don't trust uh, intimately to, you know, mix a drink for you. If you're going to have a drink, please don't drink, but if you do drink, um, <laughs> but that's not the same thing. And like telling them that they, you know, that they can't, show their legs in public or that they, you know, if they're, wearing a short skirt or a bathing suit or something like that, that they're bringing on sexual assaults. And, uh, you know, and one of the problems that in the Elizabeth Smart case, who was a uh, young woman who was kidnapped and held hostage for several months by a, a man and actually his partner, a woman was colluding with him in it, um, you know, is that there was an instance when he actually took her they were living out in the woods and hiding from the public and uh, and then they went to the library so that he could use the internet and there was a police officer who happened to be there and even though at this point she had been missing for several months and really looked completely disheveled and but he still thought that he recognized her and he went up to her in the library 
and asked her who she was and whether or not she needed any help. And she was so afraid of speaking to any adult that she couldn't uh, bring herself to say who she was. And it was several more weeks before she was eventually rescued. And, you know, now she tells the story herself as a, a, you know, to promote violence prevention. So I, you know, I think sometimes and a lot of what's falls into victim blaming is that we try to tell people in the in the purpose of risk reduction or violence prevention we tell them things that actually make the situation worse so instead of telling your kids don't talk to strangers actually what really protects kids from vi- uh, violence is being as having good social skills and knowing who safe adults are and how to approach them and how to interact with them um, you know, there's, there was a one fascinating study that was done several years ago where they took videos of like playgrounds and malls and other settings where there were crowds and they showed them to a bunch of convicted perpetrators and asked them to pick out who the good targets were. And over and over, because, you know, perpetrators are not randomly attacking people. They are looking for people that they think that they will be able to successfully get what they want, whether it's their wallet or whether they are sexual predators or whatever the case may be. Um, And over and over again, they were picking the people who were socially isolated, who looked, uh, you know, uncomfortable and anxious and, and social settings and So I think we have to be careful when we tell our kids to protect themselves. It doesn't mean that they should become hermits and that they should, you know, lock themselves up and never go out, never have any social relationships. Those kids are not actually better off than these kids who are are strong and confident and know how to navigate lots of different kinds of social situations. Yeah, that's interesting. Years ago I did um, assessments for our local county for misdemeanors. And part of my training was, uh, you know, being trained in um, pedophiles. And so uh, at this one seminar that we went to with one very prominent trainer, um, he was pointing out, uh, well, they actually showed us uh, uh, footage of an interview with uh, pedophiles in a local prison. And the interview was a little painful, but it gave us great insight. And one of the questions that one of the men was asked. He had three daughters, and he uh, sexually abused two of his daughters. And the interviewer said, why those two? Why not the other one? And he said, oh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done anything with her because she had such a big mouth that she'd never have kept it quiet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that's I think, a powerful... You know, Story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah. I, I mean, again, you know, it's not, it's not kids' responsibilities to keep themselves safe. But I, I, but I do think it just reinforces the point that, uh, that yeah, that people who are confident and and verbal and good at interacting when seeking help, that that those are things that that make them safe. Yeah. Well, and I always said, you know, if I raise my, I, I want to raise my daughter so that she will speak up no matter what. Uh, that was kind of my goal. And she kind of does. So I guess, <laughs> I, guess I did something there. Um, but yeah. uh, I want to get over into a little bit of, a, a, of an area that we haven't spoken about. And that is, what do you do? Like with me, what do you do if you catch yourself doing the victim blaming? How can we educate people to not blame the victim? What do we do about this, in other words? Yeah, well, uh, hopefully you and I are doing something about it right now, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and raising awareness about it. And, you know, uh, just with anything, I think just a little uh, self-talk and a little cognitive reframing, sometimes just recognizing like, oh, you know, there I there I go again, or, or step back for a minute and and learn to ask yourself the question, like, well, am I approaching this client or this victim or this loved one or uh, whoever it is in some way that, that might make it worse for them? I mean, I, and to go back to the question that you posed at the, at the very opening of the show about whether or not this is uh, harmful as some of the other things that you talk about on this show, 
there's actually a lot of evidence that the responses that when people get negative responses to disclosure and get blamed that this is as traumatic or in some cases perhaps even more traumatic than the original offense and in the criminal justice system the the typical criminal justice responses is so hurtful and unhelpful that people in the field, as you may know, uh, often, often call it the second rape. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that's a problem in, in not just for sexual assault, but for all kinds of these experiences or, you know, or as you example with your friend who was working in the hospice, that's, that really that's, that's a huge enough problem in that hospice that it was the the overarching issue that came to her when you asked her why she left that position, then that hospice really should be doing a lot more to recognize that this is a really common problem and that this is just making the end of life stage for these people even more difficult than it already is. And, and they should really be addressing that, that directly. So it's something that should be that individuals should be checking in with themselves and, and also that organization should be thinking about, are there things, maybe they're not intentional, but, you know, are there things that they're doing that might be inadvertently making it harder on, on victims? Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And I think probably as individuals, we should be asking those questions too um, of ourselves. Oh, yeah. You know, is my attitude here, you know, it kind of checking yourself to make sure you're not perpetuating some of these um, stereotypes of blaming the victim. I, I think that, you know, that it behooves us to, to constantly look at our own responses. Because, um, I mean, I think victim blaming, I feel very strongly about it. And, and I'm very conscious of, you know, it, when I might be doing it and trying to think of other ways to do it. Um, but I, I think that, to me, victim blaming... I fluctuate between thinking that's a smug, arrogant attitude and why are you exhibiting this behavior? And I've come to the conclusion that we exhibit this victim blaming because if we, well, like in domestic violence, if we can make it her fault, if there's something she did or didn't do that caused her to be in this situation, well, then I'm safe because I won't do that or, or, or skip doing that. So I'm safe. So I see it almost as a way of... Um, someone separating themselves from that kind of a situation and thinking that they're safe. If they can make it her fault, then I'm safe. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly what the just world hypothesis says is that people are doing it because they are feeling vulnerable themselves. And, and so in that regard too, I think it's important. I mean, you know, I can't honestly say that I don't ever get frustrated with people who work in the field who are behaving in very victim blaming ways. But, but I, you know, but I, I think especially if you're trying to check in with yourself, it's just to understand that it brings up issues of vulnerability and, and for many people and really even culturally in a, in a lot of Western cultures, and vulnerability is a very difficult feeling to deal with. I mean, it's certainly one that, that I, you know, personally, uh, it's not my favorite feeling. And, uh, you know, it's something that I, I'm working on with trying to learn to be more vulnerable or learn to see that there's uh, that there's positive things that come out of that, too. Uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there, you know, there's a 100% mortality rate out there. Uh, memento mori, as they say, remember that you die. And and I think sometimes that when we are victim blaming, it's because we've lost touch with that. And, and it probably means that even though we are certainly harming the victim, if we are expressing victim blaming or creating systems that are somehow making it harder for victims, but we're also suffering from that ourselves because it means that we are shutting ourselves down or trying to wall ourselves off in ways that, you know, in the long run are, are not going to be good for us either. And so I, you know, I think to have a, a little, uh, you know, to be compassionate with your, with your own feelings, even if they're not the feelings that you want to have. And 
uh, you know, in a, take a mindful approach to them and just learn to not reject them, even if you think that they're the wrong feelings or bad feelings in some way, but just to observe them and, and try to understand where they might be coming from, uh, you know, that that is, is something that would really help a lot of providers and, and loved ones as well as, as victims. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you're familiar with nextdoor.com? Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of like a community thing, blah blah blah. Um, my daughter um, suggested that I do it because she she finds a lot of things, you know, for household maintenance, etc. And she can find good prices sometimes when people are selling it. Anyway, so I went on it, and I I you know in my neighborhood, and uh, I've checked with with it every now and then. And there was recently a television special in our. I live in the Seattle area. And there was recently a television special uh, about the the homeless situation, which has just bur- you know, just grown uh, huge around here, and it's really quite a mess. And somebody said posted on that nextdoor.com. Did you anybody see this special? It was very very well done, and it spurred um, the basic premise of the the TV special was that. A lot of this, a huge percentage of this is drug addiction. And instead of um, you know, being treated as a drug addiction problem, it's treated as, a, oh, I hit some bad circumstances and I lost my home, which certainly happens. But um, the, the show indicated that, they, that it was more predominantly a drug problem. This spurred a huge debate that's still going on a, a, a month later. And... People were saying, no, we have to do something about this. No, this isn't kind when you have mentally ill people living in tents under the freeway. And no, we have to do something. About it. And then there was a factor, faction that was saying, well, you're flaunting your privilege and these people aren't to, to blame for this. And, and it was, I found it interesting and also frustrating because I thought, well, if you're saying there's a problem there and the problem needs to be repaired, is that victim blaming? Um, yeah, I heard actually a little bit about that documentary, and which I have not seen, although I do have a number of colleagues who I think were very unhappy with the way the homeless population was portrayed in that documentary. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about that that documentary to say for sure, but I think if you're thinking more generally like the problem of homelessness, that you know, at first it's not really fair to paint any large population with those kind of general stereotypes and, uh, you know, or, or to say, I mean, that just, I mean, it causes so many problems in so many ways. And because there are, as you suggest, many, many paths to end up homeless. And, and it is definitely, I mean, I think a lot of times that people in the middle classes and upper middle classes have a hard time understanding, you know, what it's like to be in the working poor and and that they don't really recognize their own privilege and how many oftentimes multi-generational advantages that they've had that provide all these insulation and because our in the United States our 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 social safety net is so poor, you know, they don't understand how much they might rely on family safety nets. And, and if you don't have those family safety nets, that, that it would only take, you know, two or three bad things happening in a row, which again is, you know, something we all think that we can control that and we can protect ourselves from that, but you can't always do that. And um, so, you you know, I mean, a lot of the reasons people lose their homes, for example, are because of medical bills. That's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And, uh, you know, and then that reason for that is because we we don't have decent health care policy in the United States. And, people are just getting charged, you know, ridiculous amounts of, of money that represent several years worth of income. And then collection agencies are coming after them and they have to declare bankruptcy and, you know, and then that's how they can end up uh, homeless. So, but, but there, there is a a huge percentage of uh, whether it's, you know, the chicken or the egg. I mean, a lot of homeless people do have drug problems. Um, And, 
so I think that a lot of times people see that as a choice. And so if you've chosen this, uh, you know, I don't know. It's too complex for me. I'll tell you, it really is. I mean, I, I, I wish sometimes that I could see things more simplistically because when you go, you're going over this stuff in your brain and you're trying to look at it from all different perspectives. And then you find yourself saying something that's like, Whoa, where did that, where did I get off saying that thing? You know, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's, it's so overwhelming sometimes trying to make sure that we're not um, adding to the, the social problems that we see because of our attitudes. And I think that that's a long way to get back to the beginning here, but I think that that's why blaming the victim doesn't get a lot of, of attention. Um, that, that's, that's my opinion. Does, do you think that blaming the victim gets a lot of attention? Do you think walking down the street and you could have a conversation with somebody about, you know, the tendency to blame the victim? And I, I just don't see it as a generalized conversation. Uh, no, no, I don't think. I mean, I think that it kind of waxes in and out on particular topic areas. So probably most recently, for example, in sexual assault, there's been a lot of pretty public pushback on blaming the victim, but but then it'll rear its head, you know, as you suggest, with like problems of homelessness or drug addiction. And uh, I mean, all of those things. I mean, I think that the other, another one of the blind spots that we have with a lot of this is uh, what's known in psychology as the actor-observer difference or the um, the fundamental attribution error. And in the fundamental attribution error, we tend to make things more seem more focused on individuals than we do on their situation. But we mostly only have that error when we're looking at other people. So when you're looking at that, you know, homeless person who also has a drug addiction and you're like, well, just stop taking the drugs. Like, what's the big deal? And, you know, you're completely ignoring the context of their trauma history or the, you know, the biology of addiction and what it would mean to get off of that or how, you know, um, that still wouldn't solve, you know, half a dozen other problems that they've got or suddenly put them in a home, even if they stop doing that. But when you look at your own problems, you know, so when you're, when you're the actor and not the observer, then suddenly we just see all of these complicated contexts and nuances that we don't, uh, that we, that we forget when we are looking at other people. And so, I mean, that's another kind of well-known psychological bias or limitation in our thinking that that leads to victim blaming uh, but you're but you're right I don't think it gets talked about enough in the field and in on most fields and and again I think it's because it requires vulnerability and uh, because it requires you know maybe giving up some of your belief that you have really worked hard and deserve everything that you have and that you you know people don't like to attribute their own success to luck and if other people's success or 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 failures are are really heavily influenced by luck or social forces that are outside their control well then that implies that might be true even for those of us who you know are doing quite well and you know so we so we don't Mm -hmm. want to think about it yeah that's it we just don't want to think about it i think um and i I don't know i mean for me because of course i've you know been um, kind of hanging around the periphery of all you wonderful researchers and in these various fields. For me, I, I come to the conclusion that we blame the victim so we can feel better about ourselves. If you know, and and I explained that earlier. So that's a powerful motivation to continue blaming the victim. Um, if if blaming the victim makes me feel better about me, then what's my motivation for trying to curb that blaming the victim behavior? Well, I mean, for some people, there might not be, you know, an an answer to that. But I think for people who are trying to support their loved ones that 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 they, you know, might realize that if they help their loved one feel better and that they don't want to hurt their loved one, that that's a strong motivation. I think maybe that there's also the benefit then of getting to see yourself as someone who is helpful and supportive instead of somebody who's hurtful and just making a problem even worse than it was before they disclosed to you. I think most people don't want to see themselves in that way. So if you 
Do you want to be seen as a good person? Um, I think for a lot of us who are in the the system as as providers and practitioners and advocates, that you know that people want to be more effective. I mean, again, to go back to your friend who used to work for that hospice. I mean, pretty much everybody who enters those kinds of jobs there's um, going for what people call our you know mission driven fields. You know, it's not like being a um, a banker or uh, you know, we go into these things because we want to make a positive difference. We want to help people. We want to minimize the suffering in the world. And in fact, a lot of these institutions are really not nearly as good at reducing that suffering in the world as I think most of the people who work for them would, would like to be. And and so if we mm-hmm. got better at things like victim blaming, then it would also really provide a, a huge opportunity for us to make improvements in prevention and intervention and and help reduce the amount of trauma that in the world that everybody's walking around shouldering. And, uh, you know, I think that would be a lot to gain for giving up just a few wish fulfillments is that, as you mentioned already, you know, that you're, you're going to die sooner or later anyway. So the sooner you can sort of let go of the fantasy that there are things you can do to keep that from happening, uh, you know, the more effective <laughs> that you can be in these other areas. No, no, more more helmets and knee pads, more kale, and we're <laughs> safe. <laughs> um, I, you know, right, I'll, exactly. I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, gosh, this hour has gone fast. And uh, I appreciate it. I know sometimes my questions were kind of out, out there, but I appreciate the, the skillful way that you responded to each one of them, Sherry. So thank you for that. And um, I want to thank you for listening out there and, we're all just trying to learn more and do better. I think that, that that's kind of the explanation for what I'm trying to present here. And Sherry, thank you, Sherry Hamby. If somebody wants to learn more about your work, where would they go? Uh, well, uh, thank you, Heather. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all these, these thorny issues today. And uh, thank you for your questions on that. And if people want to learn more about my work, they can go to my website. It's uh, Life Path Research, uh, L-I-F-E-P-A-T-H-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot org. Uh, and you can find a lot of my work on victim blaming and other topics there. Or you can also find me on ResearchGate if you're uh, looking for the original scholarly papers. Okay. What's next for you? Are you going to be doing more? Because you have a very eclectic background. Um, and your research, you know, covers some broad areas. It's not a very, um, you know, tiny little area that you that you look at. You you seem to have a lot of interests. So, what's next for you? Uh, right now, I'm working on a book on resilience, and most of my efforts are on getting trying to get the field to shift towards more strengths-based approaches to prevention and intervention, and getting people to focus on helping them develop their their meaning making and their sense of purpose and their uh, connection to community instead of this kind of ongoing focus on trying to take away symptoms or anxiety and really, you know, help people learn to just thrive and not just survive. Yeah. Great. Again, thank you, Sherry Hamby, and thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways.